Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. with that mic in your hand. It's time for School Rock School with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. You mentioned the plasmatics. Did you know or meet Wendy O. Williams? Oh, boy. Yeah, I, tell me. I love Wendy O. Williams. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns. I'm sorry Tammy isn't with us today because I made an offhanded comment in a show about three back. And I said, hey, look, I haven't been able to get any books sent to me over the course of the summer because I usually take uh, the month of July and I do five books in a row. One offhanded comment got a hold of a slew of books. And the first one that showed up was called I Am Michael Alago. If you don't know who Michael Alago is, number one, it's an unbelievably good story of somebody who was so in love with music, he wouldn't stop until he worked in the music industry. Michael Alago has so much more to his life, but the one that you probably might know him from is that he signed Metallica. This is the guy that signed Metallica. But he also signed Nina Simone. He also signed multiple bands that you know of, but his life and his story is so magnificently interesting that the 300 plus pages that his book is made up of is, well, it's about this much Metallica. And then the rest of it is his life, because his life may be more interesting than Metallica. So for an hour today, I am Michael Alago. And we speak to Michael Alago. On the phone with me, Michael Alago, author of I Am Michael Alago, uh, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, and Beating Death. Michael, how are things up in New York City? Oh, well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm still basically in a bit of quarantine for the last four months. Um, You know, the city is a bit of a ghost town, but you do see buses and the occasional car go up 8th Avenue. Um, It's a little, it's gotten to me a little bit because, you know, I'm not used to just always staying home. Um, I have a terrace, so that helps with the outdoor part. Uh, I go out to the pharmacy and I go to the grocery store. Um, and I probably watch too much uh, MSNBC news. <laughs> uh, and then when I just want to totally relax, I turn it over to uh, Turner Classic Movies, TCM. There you I go. Love all those old black and white noir films. Like, oh, you know, me with too. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And, uh, yeah. So, you know. And what it has also done, this bit of quarantine, is I'm getting to just stay home and focus on promoting and marketing my book in, in this in these trying.
trying times. There you go. It's the stuff that dreams are made of, Michael. Yes, sir. Yes, it is. Now, look, I, I, I've i read your book front to back. I enjoyed it immensely, and I wanted to oh, point out you. some... Oh, certainly. It, it's it's well written. You start by saying you were surrounded by exceptional human beings. This is in the introduction, but look, you yourself are a quintessential American story. The idea of following a dream, the idea of failure, success, failure, success... And you, you have to see yourself as a product of all of these exceptional human beings, do you? I do. <laughs> you know, I was brought up by a marvelous mother, my four foot ten mom, Blanche, who has since uh, almost three years now passed away at 94 years old. But, you know, um, when we talk about being young, if that's what you're asking me, mm -hmm. I was a young person, and I say it in the book at the beginning of the book, uh, that I was a young person who came out of the womb loving music. Right. Um, and I, after school, I would stay home a lot, and I would watch, well, on the weekends, uh, mostly, uh, Dick Clark's American Bandstand, Don Cornelius' Soul Train. Loved it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Midnight Special uh, uh, show. With, um, who who did the Midnight Special? Um, uh, it was a, a series of them. Don yeah. Kirshner. Yeah. yeah, Don Kirshner. Um, so I was a bit of a loner, and I just always watched those television shows that sh that gave us a large variety of artists from a Grand Funk Railroad to Rare Earth, from David Bowie to Aretha Franklin. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I knew at a very young age I wanted to be in the music business, but for a 12, 13-year-old, what does that mean? I don't know. Right. I just know from watching those shows that I love music. Have you ever thought that you became who you were because you came out of the New York scene? They, they ask why Mozart is so big. Well, it's because he was smart enough to be born at the time that he was. You were mm -hmm. born at the correct time, but could you have been... Which I had nothing personally to do with. Right. <laughs> the Beatles are the same way. What if the Beatles came out in 82? I mean, they had the brains to be born so they could come out in the 60s. Do you think you could have been Michael Alago adding effect to that word? If you had grown up in Cleveland, if you had grown up in Iowa, what have you, was it New York that shaped you? Well, you know, like I said, loving music from an early age, I would have hoped if I did grow up in Cleveland or New Orleans, I would have got a chance to hear that wide variety of music, knowing that I love music at an early age. But yes, of course, New York City, man. Growing up in Brooklyn, taking the train into the city was huge because I just knew at an early age, again, I would get, um, there was a newspaper that I was very fond of, a weekly called The Village Voice. Yeah. The Village, the Village Voice had everything in there from music, art, theater, pornography, and politics. Never cared much for the politics angle at a very <laughs> early age, but I loved all the rest of the stuff going on in there. And I just somehow knew 
to go to the music section and see that a club on the Bowery called CBGB is having some new artists there named Blondie, Patti Smith, The Ramones. All those people were putting out their first albums in 1977. Right. And I knew I wanted to be a part of that. And once I became a part of that downtown music scene, I was out every single night. I was loving every single moment of it. And um, I, I don't know if you want me to fast forward yet or not, but by the time I was 19, I got my first job in the music business. I was going to say, you just said by the time you were 19, Michael, how old were you when you were bopping out to Max's and CBGB? Ay, ay, ay. I was 15 15 and 16 years old. I looked like I was 12 and a half. None of those clubs back in those days um, uh, carded you. And, like, specifically to Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGB, he would see all us young people wanting to come hear the music. And the stipulation was you could come in if I see alcohol in your hand. You're out of here for two weeks, you know. So, of course, we drank every six-pack we could before getting to CBGB so that we feel good and we would stay until closing. Why my mom let me out at a very young age like that, I have no idea. But God bless her because that... um, gave me my wings that gave me uh, uh, I don't know how to say it it just it just helped me to know that wow I don't have a plan B so I have to figure out what plan A is going to be in this music business oh sure I think I think the vast majority of people who who succeed in the same way you succeeded they arrive at the shore and they burn the ships Indeed. You're not going to make it as a guy who goes out to the foundry. So it's this or nothing. So buck up, child. We have to get things done. Yes, indeed. You bet. Hey, do me a favor. I'm going to jump forward. Since you mentioned her, I have had this argument with a buddy of mine who is a humongous punk fan. You did an entire chapter on Patti Smith. Sure. Let me tell you what I think, and I just want you to comment on it. I have never thought patty smith was punk i've always believed her to simply be a poet with a band behind her i make that distinction she's not the ramones she's just a brilliant wordsmith and she was able to stick it into music am i right or am i missing something well as we all know people love to label yeah. <laughs> so because she came out at that same time as Blondie, the Ramones, Talking Heads, because, uh, oh, Patty, she's part of the punk scene. Mm-hmm. So maybe her attitude had that, I don't give a darn, punkness about it. But she, yes, like you just mentioned, she was a poet. Uh, she classified the music back then as three chord rock merged with the power of the word and I when I heard horses I just completely fell in love um so I think I answered your question I think you did every night before I could sleep find a ticket win a lottery 
back of the pearls up from the sea. Cash them in and buy you all the things you need. Every night before I rest my head, see those dollar bills go swirling in my bed. money by you things you never had oh baby Let's jump forward. I want to get back to CBGB's, but Max's Kansas City. It was on Park Avenue South in almost lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I I never thought about it, to be perfectly frank. Well, it, it seemed to be your springboard, if I read the book correctly. It seemed to be your springboard to going beyond a fan. There's the kid in the audience, and then there's the kid that was you. Who wanted to go farther than that? You also called it your extended family. Explain Max's Kansas City to us. Mm-hmm, sure. Um, I think I went to both Max's and CBGB equally. But what happened at Max's Kansas City is I met a gentleman named Peter Crowley. He took a liking to me, I took a liking to him. And uh, I don't know, I think he thought there was something special about me. So he allowed me to go to all the shows there. I would go backstage and I always knew I loved to take pictures. So I would photograph people there. And um, he, I, I would say that baby Peter was one of my first, or maybe my first mentor in that he managed someone named Wayne County, now Jane County, mm-hmm. and they needed pictures. And he asked me if I wanted to come up to Toronto and shoot some photographs for Roxine magazine. My, I was about 16 now, maybe 17, and my mom let me go. And uh, I did some pictures for Roxine. When we got back, they forgot that they needed a photograph for the cover of an EP that they were doing. <laughs> and this one night they said, do you still have film in your camera? I said, I have one frame left. Get that. So Come I took on. Wayne, I took Wayne to the toilet, which is what it was up there. Yeah. It wasn't even a bathroom. It was a toilet. So you open the door. There was the can. I said, sit on it. <laughs> stick out your tongue and hold your guitar like you're shooting at me. I took the picture. I said some prayers. You know, got it developed at the pharmacy in Brooklyn. And that last frame was the magic. That's great. And it became the front cover for their blatantly offensive EP. Yeah, and that's so great. When I say family, Peter became like my external, you know, my rock and roll family. And I met lots of people there and they thought I was uh, young. I was young and I was friendly and people took a liking to me. So things just started rolling along. Huh. Tell us about the third floor. At Max's Kansas City. Well, right. The first 
floor during the day was a restaurant. The second floor was where all the entertainers, the artists uh, uh, performed. And the third floor really was just, uh, it was Peter's office. And there were rooms that they called backstage. Uh -huh. but, you know, these there were just small rooms that uh, where the artists hung out. And... Um, that's where a lot of us wound up uh, after the shows. If we wanted to say hi, or for me to say hello, or take photographs of people. Was there some kind of a a deal between Max's and CBGB? Was it friendly rivalry? Was there the idea sure. of you can't play yeah. one, you can't play the other? Yeah, it was a friendly rivalry, and that existed because you know if the Dead Boys, for instance, one of my mm -hmm. favorite punk bands, were playing at CB's for three nights in a row. You wouldn't get that same kind of business the following week or two if they wound up doing one night at Max's. So there was a respectful <laughs> rivalry. Just because, you know, the places were small and you always wanted to fill them up or sell them out. So uh, that went on for a very long time. But after a while, everyone knew, listen, if you play in CB, you're not playing Max's for the next six months. And that's just how it was. And that was completely accepted? Uh, well, yes, it was. Huh. I mean, you know, if you didn't accept it, uh, you know, the artist would have no choice. You either want to play one place or the other. Maybe you have a favorite place. Um, but like, you know, like I said, if the Dead Boys were doing three nights with the damned who were coming over from the UK the following week they're not going to do Max's because everybody's all tuckered out for those three nights <laughs> so everybody like I said between the artists the managers the booking agents um, respected that <laughs> take our first break here on the Rock School Radio Show. Allow all of those who are running the show to run their commercials. We'll be back in one minute to continue talking with Michael Alaga.
you gotta tell me because I, I, I obviously I grew up in Cleveland. I didn't see it. You have to tell me what the Ramones were like at their CBGB height. I can't even imagine. What was it like to see them? Well, um, I'll answer that in, in two ways. When you say at their height, I saw them when they were just doing maybe their first couple gigs. And it was, un, it was like machinery. It was unlike anything that I had heard before. And they would go through 25 songs <laughs> in about 17 minutes, yeah. <laughs> and your mouth would be hanging open when it was over, and you thought, oh boy, I'm coming back for this again. I mean, they were phenomenal. They were, are truly, they were one of a kind. Nobody sounded like the Ramones. How 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 loud were they? It had to be insane. Oh, it was, it was, the sound system was terrific at CBGB. Yeah. So they played loud. You know, and to this day, I'm 60 years old. To this day, I don't think I ever used earplugs for anything. Really? Not not. Oh yes, but not to say that my eardrum got a little blown out for a few months after the plasmatics <laughs> and bonds. Or that now at 60, I have a little tinnitus in that right ear. But you know what? I just wanted the full-on effect, which I got. The Ramones changed over the years. They changed just because they grew as artists. Uh, they grew because at some point they had someone like Phil Spector producing yeah. them. Yeah. So the songs got more pop oriented but you know they were people for me who never lost their integrity i always loved going to see the ramones um and i like i said i, th I thought they were one of a kind and uh joey ramone was just fantastic <laughs> Metallica. You're, mm -hmm. You, you're the guy. <laughs> yes, indeed. And um, try to relate I, to us what this band was in the Raw. Oh, sure. Uh, they were young and reckless on stage. They were called, They were not called Alcoholica for nothing. <laughs> um, but you know what? What I saw in them, oh, I saw them at Lemoore in Brooklyn in like, 83 when I was almost getting ready to leave the Ritz, but thinking, maybe I'll book them there. Didn't happen. I became friends with an independent label uh, uh, called Megaforce Records. Johnny Z ran that label. They had enough money to make records, but beyond that, they couldn't really do for their artists what was necessary. Mm -hmm. To make a long story short, and there's a lot of it in my book on the chapter on Metallica, um, I heard their first independent release called Kill Em All, and I lost my mind. 
This is a record that was unlike any other uh, metal record. They were combining punk and speed and traditional hard rock, British heavy metal into this one thing that eventually got called thrash metal. Right. It was extraordinary. So I, 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 it was early on, it was 1983. I had some work to do in San Francisco. I managed to see them at the Stone in San Francisco. I lost my mind. I lost my mind because all four of these young people had that charisma, starting with James Hetfield, their lead singer, who was a ringleader on stage. He knew how to whip the crowd into a frenzy, and the audience bought into it. I give Lars, the drummer, my business card. I say, you know, if he looks at me, I'm probably in some ripped-up Misfits t-shirt and jeans. I certainly have never in my 30-year career looked like a, a record company executive. I give him my card. He's like, wait, you work for Electro Records? I said, I do, and I hope to work with your band in the near future. Time goes by, months go by, it's the beginning of 1984, Lars calls me and says, are you still interested in us? I said, absolutely, young man. Never mind that I was a young man, too. Right. If, they were 20, <laughs> if they were 21, I was 23. Um, so um, he calls and says, we're going to be part of a mega force evening at Roseland Ballroom on West 52nd Street, August 3rd, 1984. Will you come? Honey, I certainly came. I brought Bob Krasnow, our chairman. I brought Mike Bone, our head of radio promotion, knowing that this had nothing to do with radio whatsoever. Sure. But Mike was a very important part of the equation. So I see them at Roseland. They're, they're in the middle of, a, of, of the, the whole evening. I think the opening act was Anthrax, then Metallica, then Raven. Well, they blew the roof off the friggin' place. All 3,500 people could not get enough of this band who had been the talk of the underground metal scene for the last two years. Never mind that Kill 'Em All came out. There was, an un there was this cassette that everybody was talking about called No Life Till Leather. Oh, honey, that thing was a mess. It was uh, <laughs> down and dirty. Not really unlistenable, but, you know, like I said, back then, everybody, all the people on that scene were trading cassettes, handing out flyers, will you come see my band? And that's how everything, that was the way you promoted stuff back then, very specific to underground metal. So they had been the talk of the town. They play Roseland. Everyone goes insane. Nobody wants them to leave the stage. I make my way very drunk backstage and I am like in heaven. I, I like bang the door closed. I think I probably locked the door. And, you know, they're all towel drying their head, uh, you know, and their, their bodies off from giving this wild, incredible, sweaty performance. And Lars sees me and he's like, oh my God. So I give him a hug and a kiss and everything. And all the other guys are looking like, who is this person? <laughs> Never mind, who is this drunk, brown, Hispanic, gay, <laughs> Puerto Rican, hugging and kissing everybody. So Lars had to say, James, this is Michael Alago from Electra Records. Well, they all just stopped what they were doing. We shook hands. I let them know how much I love them and that I had to sign them. I knew about the pitfall of them being on another label. I had to do this very um, delicately because, you know, you once you start screwing with somebody's contract, it could all go south. Sure. And being a company like Time Warner, we could have gotten in trouble. But also, I love that word finesse. I use it often. Um, 
The next day, they came up to my office in the conference room. We had Chinese food. We had beer. I gave them cassettes of the MC5, the Doors, the Stooges, um, and uh, we were, uh, and I felt like, you know what? Like they never left. I mean, we secured the deal. Um, Megaforce Records was pissed off at me, but I really had to let them know they had to be reasonable about this because they couldn't do what I could do for them. Right. So oh, our sure. business affairs... Our business affairs talked with their business affairs, and everybody walked away financially happy. That's so that's, that's, the way to that's do how it. I signed Metallica to Electra Records. It's brilliant. Time for the second break here on Rock School. We'll take one minute, allow our affiliates to play their commercials, and we'll be back to talk with Michael Alago right here on the Rock School Radio Show.
Look, I, I, I'm, I'm running out of time because I okay. can't get it into an hour. But I have to. I, I want to talk Flotsam and Jetson. I want to talk Robert Maplethorpe. I want to talk Bill Graham. But I have to jump to and 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 this is what people will see when they read the book. Sure. There's a chapter, and then there's a chapter, and they're nice and short, so the book can be read in such nice little bites here and there. Sure. I, I mean, I purposely did that, right? You know, knowing the people's attention span these days, I wanted to tell as many. Well, you know, it's the world we live in. Have gimme, gimme, right now. I need it, and uh, so I, I specifically wanted to make things, you know, give everybody as much information as possible in a short period of pages, right. except for maybe Metallica and Nina Simone. That's, um, thank you for, thank you for previewing right into it. Metallica's okay. on the front cover. But Michael, yeah. I got to tell you what, when you read a book by somebody, you hear that person speaking to you in your head. I know uh, you loved Metallica, don't get me wrong. But Nina Simone seemed to be your Svengali. It seemed to be the the person who she had had her world. She had had her career. And you were the one that was going to bring her back. Please tell us the story of Nina Simone. Oh, sure. My, I, my dad's sister, my Aunt Jenny, I would go visit her on the weekends. She was gorgeous. She had great taste in music. Her, her vinyl was Johnny Mathis, Isaac Hayes, Al Green, Nancy Wilson, Nina Simone. I see Nina Simone in concert and Nina Simone at town hall on vinyl. I decide I'm listening to this. And I think this voice blew me away. Now at 13 years old, I don't know if I knew about the word androgynous, but this deep, rich, husky voice was just spoke to me spoke to me so i uh, you know that was the beginning of just hearing this incredible voice uh, and we again we can fast forward and when i started just buying vinyl anytime i went to the record store i went over to the they always put her in jazz but she was not really a jazz artist no uh and i would look for whatever records were coming out by her and I bought everything that was available. I started seeing her in 1983 live, and I lost my mind. This was a gorgeous woman who sang songs that weren't her own. She would sing Just Like Tom Thumbs Blues by Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. She would sing Here Comes the Sun by George Harrison. She would reinterpret Jacques Brel from French to English and did it all so beautifully because she knew how to get to the heart of the matter of a song. Yeah. Jack Brell is alive and well. completely blow you away. Yeah. And this was also an artist on stage that had such power and such charisma and such don't F with me <laughs> that, you know, you either liked her, loved her, or you didn't. I fell in love with her. We stayed friends the last 15 years of her life. I got to speak to her because something in my head said, call Nina. She was in the south of France. I was going to visit my dad's grave after the winter. It was April uh, of 2003. And I'm getting, on the su getting ready to go on the subway, and I said, now nah, you better call. So I call her in the south of France, not knowing that she had had a stroke. I knew that she had breast cancer, and mm. she was dealing with that. So I get on the phone with her, and she says to me, oh, sugar lips. 
How come you never married me? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, Nina, well, you know, I love you so much. I love you so much, and you don't sound so good. She said, I don't feel good at all. I said, okay, love, listen, we're going to do this. I got stuff to do. I'm going to book a flight to Marseille. Put, put, and the housekeeper got it. It was a little too much for her, the conversation. It, it was getting a little long. So the, the housekeeper um, got back on. I said, please tell Clifton, her assistant, I'm flying into Marseille tomorrow, and somebody has to pick me up. That's it. There's no talk about anything else. Hmm. I get about my day. I pack my bag. I forget to close, uh, shut down the computer. I wake up, and I don't know why I'm never, I was never on CNN on the computer, but there's CNN, and the top of the page, it says Nina Simone dead at 70. Oh, no. Well, I had a breakdown. Uh, I couldn't deal. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, nobody in, the, in South of France called me back for any of this stuff. So I just thought, I have to just deal with this. I couldn't listen to the music for about two years. And then finally I thought to myself, you know, Michael, you loved her so much. You experienced all sorts of events with her all over the world. Start playing the music. And, you know, after that, you know, you just, you grieve. And some people grieve longer than others. Um, and I just started listening to the music again. And she's my all-time favorite artist. Uh, you know, if you said, if you go into a desert island and you have five records, what are you bringing? Yeah. All five Nina Simone records. Oh, really? I, I just, they, oh, yes. There was <laughs> something so captivating about her that I fell in love with her. She loved me because I was almost maybe half her age. Yeah. And that I loved and respected her so much. We had laughs over the years that were unbelievable. And so finally, she had made a record for over 10, 12 years. I made a beautiful record with her called A Single Woman. Um, Andre Fisher produced it. Andre was married to Natalie uh, Cole at the time. He was the drummer in Chaka Khan's band Rufus. And we made this beautiful record with a 50-piece orchestra about love and loneliness and loss. We based it on Billie Holiday's Lady in Satin and Frank Sinatra's Man Alone. It was the last recorded, full-length recording Nina had ever made. And it's a, it's, it's a sad and beautiful record. Michael Alago, breathing yeah. music, signing Metallica, beating death. That's the thing, Michael. I haven't even touched on your fight with HIV. I just I wanted to let you know this 
Um, mm-hmm. My wife didn't read the book, but she obviously watched the, the documentary with me. Sure. She is a respiratory therapist, and ah, she okay. was one of very few people who, mm-hmm. were, who volunteered to go mm-hmm. into the wards with these men. They were still calling it gay cancer at the time. Oh, yes, sir. And mm-hmm. she went in, and she, for tens and tens and tens, I'm not sure it's a hundred, but she was the last kind words that any of these men ever heard. So your story and your success over the hideous disease is, mm-hmm. and it's all in the book, and I don't want to give away the book. It's all in the book, yeah. and if we're kind of getting ready to wrap up our conversation, yes. you know, I didn't want to write a book just about music, because the same thing as the documentary, uh, Who the F is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago, on uh, Netflix mm-hmm. and Amazon Prime. I had to be shameless right there. Yeah, do uh, it. <laughs> I wanted to just tell the truth about my life, about 25 years as an A&R executive, about addiction and recovery, and then getting full-blown AIDS in the early 90s when there was no medication, and I fought lay on my sofa and not go into that ward because I had a brilliant doctor, Barbara Starrett. She didn't want me to stay home, but I said, Barbara, I have great health care, and if I go, it's going to kill me. She didn't like it, but she understood. And she took such a liking to me. She was so kind that before her rounds, every morning at St. Vincent's, she would bicycle ride to my home at like five o'clock in the morning and ask how I was. Now between Barbara being my primary care and my love, which I talk about, for the artist Patti Smith Mm -hmm. in my book, those things kept my spirit going. They really did. And you know, whether you believe in God, I always think the good Lord wanted me here for a reason. And so once the medication came out, I started taking it. Uh, I never got full-blown AIDS again, but I'm always, I've always been HIV positive. I have to be careful in the winter because my lungs are shot from all the drinking drugs. But you know what? Here I am, and I tell the truth every day, and I wake up with gratitude that I'm alive, and I show up for life, and I'm a responsible human being. And, you know, I wanted to relay all that into my book so that if anybody is out there suffering with any kind of illness or 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 addiction i don't give advice i just let people know what worked for me and here i am you know i got sick at 30 years old i'm 60 years old and i live a really beautiful life because i show up and i'm in service to other people and when you do that Life is uh, rich. It, it is. really is. Hey, living well is the best revenge. Yes. Michael, <laughs> I can't tell you how happy I am. I enjoyed your book front to back, cover to cover, and I have not in any way, shape, or form given the book away. There's there's 60% more than just what you and I spoke about. I know that seems oh, sure. unthinkable. Oh, don't start. Don't start. Right. You're killing me. Graham. Yeah, I know. I mean, lots, of gr- lots of great stories, really, yeah. honest to God. Lots of great stories. Heck of a so life. Thank you for that. Heck of a life. Thank you for speaking with me. Oh, it really is such a pleasure. I totally appreciate that you love the book. And um, thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. You bet.
Say 